You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Today's message are called, is called Blessed Are the Misfits, all right? And hopefully some of you will find yourself, as I do, identifying with that. Um, but Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at this passage. It's a very, very well-known text. And I hesitate at times, and maybe it's just my own feelings, that at times I hesitate to preach on such well-known texts. They can be difficult at times, or some of you can quote to me, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. You, you, can, you, can, you, you know these things, uh, and yet so when I, when I say it, it's, it's hard sometimes to break down that barrier of familiarity. It almost seems sometimes very ordinary. I've heard a Beatitude message a dozen times, some of you are saying. Some of you grew up in church, have heard the Beatitudes, memorized them, thought of them. And yet today, I want us to really dwell on them today. I want us to really soak in what it is that Jesus is saying. And to recognize that this is some of the most, these are some of the most famous words that Jesus ever said. Some of the most well-known texts in all of the Bible are found here in Matthew 5 at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. And so to kind of bring it out, to bring it alive, uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to sh- watch a short little three-minute video clip where uh, in the, the Chosen series. I don't know if you've seen those, uh, the Chosen, where they kind of reenact the story of Jesus here and the disciples. And Jesus is working with Matthew in this scene, and he actually is beginning to write or, or communicate this, uh, this uh, Beatitudes as they're preparing it before they go to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a really neat scene. And so what he does is read the text that I'm going to read to you. And so what I'm going to do is just have this, uh, the screen, the video play, and we're going to watch that three-minute clip. It'll read the text, and then I'll continue finishing it in Matthew 5 as we'll read the salt and light passage that will go inside with, coincide with it as well. So watch this, and then I'll jump right back up. Matthew. Matthew. I've got it. The opening? Yes. What is it? A map. The what? Directions. Where people should look to find me. Okay. Give me a moment. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Yes. But how is it the map? If someone wants to find me, those are the groups they should look for. <laughs> and then? You are the salt of the earth. the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house." In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you'd bless the reading of this scripture, the teaching of this scripture as we best try to do our, as we try to do our best here to communicate, Lord, what you have done. May your spirit speak through this message. May God, you be glorified. And God, may you May you be honored by your people here today. As we find ourselves in the kingdom of God, we are blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how's life been doing for you so far? How's it been treating you this summer? Has it been good? We're thinking about, thinking about the good life recently, what, what makes a good life, how life has been going. I often ask that to many people, how are things going? How's life been? What's new? Good? Busy? Right? We'll often say. Pretty, you can pretty much predict those words and those answers. So we look at life. What exactly is a good life? This is in some ways what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5. Dallas Willard said, who is it according to Jesus that actually has the good life? Last week we talked about this 
shift of vision from Psalm 73, a paradigm shift. Do you remember that? paradigm shift where our vision changes or our worldview changes, where we're experiencing or seeing something in front of us. We look at it one way and we sorrow and despair over whatever it might be as we compare our lives who don't measure up to the other people's lives around us. And then we have a shift and a vision and understanding where we now see that same situation in a totally different light because of our faith in Jesus and our trust in Him, that God is our refuge, He is our portion, He is our inheritance, He is something that we can trust in and bank on, and it changes the way we see life, the way we look at the experiences that we have in front of us. Whether they might be good or bad, we find ourselves in an experience of a, of a shifting paradigm, altering our vision. Matthew 5 really begins this message where the Sermon on the Mount is this incredible message that Jesus delivers on top of this mount, and he, he gives it in a way that is shifting the vision and the paradigm of what is previously perceived as normal and understood in the different levels of society. He flips them upside down and shifts everything in front of everyone. He preaches this good news of the good life in the good kingdom of God. And then who is welcome in this kingdom? Who, who is participating in this kingdom? Who, who makes it into the good life of the kingdom of God? Who's the ones who get in? Surely it's got to be the cream of the crop, the tippity top, right? Those who've climbed the ladder and achieved the success, they're the ones who finally get to reach the kingdom of God. Yet we know this time in the fall season right now, we're heading into sports. I know many people are still camping this weekend and next because you got to get all the summer in before September comes. School starts, it gets busy. But I know fall tryouts is happening for many. And I remember coaching at different times, different sports, and you have people kind of waiting and encouraging as they work so hard those first two weeks to try to make the team. Most of the time, sports or other things like this are, are based on merits. Do you deserve to be on the team? Are you good enough to play the sport in which you're signing up to play? And especially as we watch the professional league, some of these teams, like the Patriots, fighting all the time in camp because they're literally fighting for a job, fighting to make the team, fighting for the paycheck. They are trying to get on the team. They're trying to be the best of the best in order to prove their worth to be part of that team. Or for you, maybe some of you made the dean's list and you can remember going to the list and this go, did I make the list? And some of you never found your name there, right? And others are used to that feeling of, oh yeah, I made it. I'm on the list. I've made it on the team. I've made it on the list. I've made it into the club. We, we know, and, and you all know the answers, that, that God's kingdom or the church in such a way is not based on merit or have we climbed to the top of the mountain to deserve to be here, but rather a very upside-down way of thinking that at all, right? If, if God's kingdom, the entire value system that he presents to us of what God values and what we value are often totally flipped upside-down than the way we would expect it. Pastor and, and theologian John Stott said, such a reversal of human values is basic to biblical religion. The ways of God and of Scripture often appear topsy-turvy to men. For God exalts the humble and abases the proud. God calls the first last and the last first. He ascribes greatness to the servant, sends the rich away empty-handed, and declares the meek to be the heirs. The culture of the world and the counterculture of Christ are often at loggerheads with each other. In brief, Jesus congratulates those whom the world most pities and calls the world's rejects blessed. 
This is what we know to be the Beatitudes, the the blessedness, the chapter of the Beatitudes, the first kind of 10, 11, 12 verses here where Jesus gives this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, a manifesto, or as the video showed us before, this sense of a map, he says, a way where people can find me. The word Beatitudes is really simply just a Latin word for blessing or most being favored for God. It comes from the Latin there. And so often we begin right in verse 2 where he opened up his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But what I want to do is back up just a little bit and think through how we got here, how we get to this passage. What's the three rules of biblical interpretation? When you're reading your Bible, you have three rules that you have to remember when you're reading the Bible and studying the Bible. They're very difficult to remember. Context, 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 right? And so context, context, context tells us to back up and like, how do we get here in chapter 5 when Jesus is all of a sudden sitting on top of the mountain and he's preaching to a great crowd of people? Where do they come from? Why is he preaching? What's the message that he's been saying up until this point? So if you were to back up in chapter 4, you're to peruse back through of what's going on. You have in chapter 3, John the Baptist, then the baptism of Jesus. Then chapter 4, we have the temptation of Jesus. Then we have this extraordinary statement when Jesus is beginning his ministry Matthew chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, he says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, he says. For those who are dwelling in the region under the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. It's like the morning sun has risen. And from that time on, verse 17, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom as Matthew interprets it, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is this statement, the message that he repeats so often. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says this very often. It's kind of the message of what he's communicating, the kingdom. And then we, we go right into verse 18, 19, 20, where he then starts to call some of the first disciples. So as he begins preaching a message of the kingdom is near, the kingdom is here, he then calls the disciples and he says to them, Hey, you uh, fishermen, you guys, I'm, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Right? Not just fishermen. I'm going to make you fishers of men, and I'm going to ask you to follow me, he says. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then, they, then a, a limited group here begins following him. Immediately they left their boat and followed him. So he speaks to kind of in, uh, small groups of people, and then it all of a sudden begins to expand outward. And then we see in this extraordinary passage in verse 23, he went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues. So now he's going all over the place, preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what does it say that he does? And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Verse 24, so his fame spread among Syria, and people were bringing to him all the sick, all the afflicted with various diseases. People were coming to him with pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Verse 25 says, And the great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. Great crowds were coming to hear him. And then chapter 5, verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain and he sat down. Because in that day the rabbi would sit. I don't know if I'd make a good rabbi. I tend to move a lot, okay? But he sits down, very calm and collected, unlike myself, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he said, blessed are the poor 
So we see this sense of, of where the backdrop is here. And when he says, and he sat down and his disciples came to him, chapter 5, verse 1, this is not speaking about the 12 disciples. This is speaking about the great crowds of people who are viewed in that mindset as the disciples. He's speaking to people who are following him, which are great crowds at this time. This is Jesus giving a manifesto, a call, a statement of, of this revolution. But it wasn't exactly the kind of revolution they were expecting, right? We know that. It wasn't this revolution that was going to overthrow the Roman government or anything. It was a very different kind of revolution. And in some ways, you might say a kind of silly revolution by revolution standards. Not one that you would expect to train an army of. Are you starting a revolution of an upstart group of ragtag misfits fit for the kingdom of God? It doesn't seem to really make, make, feel like it's going to make much of a difference in the world. Kingdom of heaven is preached. The goodness of God is poured out upon these hungry and needy people. Or he begins the transforming work of almost, in a sense, transforming misfit island. Have you ever heard that old claymation movie, Rudolph, around Christmas time? You know that old claymation, and they have in that storyline, there's the island of misfit toys. You guys tracking with me? Some of you young kids, I had no idea what's going on. There's that old, old claymation that's on every year. The island of misfit toys, the ones that aren't really, that are kind of broken, not the ones that are the perfect, pristine ones. It's that Santa and Rudolph come and rescue them, right? And so in a very not magical way, but here is in a real way, Jesus is in a sense coming to this misfit island. These groups of people that are hungry, that are thirsty, that are poor, that are mourning, that are sick, that are needy, that that are hurting, the paralytics, it says, coming to him. They're needy. And Jesus says, I'm going to take you, for you are blessed. You're going to be the kingdom of God. And not only that, I'm going to make you lighthouses for the gospel. I'm going to make you poster children for what the work of the kingdom God is doing. And then I'm going to make you as salt. You're going to be salt of the earth. You're going to be preserving the whole truth after I'm gone. You're going to be preserving the truth of God throughout the world as the gospel spreads. The goodness of Jesus will reside within his people and it will be presented outwardly as a lighthouse, like a city set on a hill, can't be hidden. I'm going to make you people into the ones. And it's, a, it's a marvelous message, it's an extraordinary message, counterculture, it's a countercultural revolution. But what would we think that Jesus would do? There's a funny, if you're watching that Chosen series, I think that's one of the last episodes that I played when they're trying to... Uh, come up with the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is going to be preaching here shortly in that, in that series. But there's a question where he's talking with Matthew and Matthew's telling him about the Sermon on the Mount that he's writing and he's like, it sounds a little aggressive in certain places. He's, Matthew's like, I don't know if it's something I'm used to hearing. And Jesus speaks to Matthew in the series and he says, well, what did you expect I was going to say? Hey, I'm here. You all just keep doing what you've been doing for thousands of years because it's been going so great, you know? Or did I come to say that there is a revolution happening? There is a kingdom being flipped upside down. The world will never be the same because God, the, the God of heaven has come down to earth. This is an extraordinary event. And not only has he come down, but he invites his beloved people to come and sit with him at his table. To participate with him in a, in a banquet feast. And that you and I are welcome at that table. It's an extraordinary message and that there's always room for one more at the table. It's this message of welcome and come. You're invited. A revolution led by a new king 
into a new kingdom full of new creations, what Boyce would, and others would say is called the new humanity. It's new humanity. Stott says the Sermon on the Mount then is to be seen in this context. It portrays repentance, this metanoia, this complete change of mind, or that paradigm shift. It portrays repentance and the righteousness which belongs to the kingdom. That is, it describes what human life and human community could look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. And yet the, the opening, the blessing, blessed are the poor in the spirit, blessed are those who mourn, who are meek, hunger and thirst, pure and right in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness. The, the, the beatitudes of what we often read them to be that they will receive something in their blessing is not always maybe what we would expect. For the Beatitudes, like we talked about earlier, are not just a way to make the dean's list or make the team. It's not something like a ladder that we climb in order to receive the top of the mountain where now finally we receive the blessing of God because we deserve to get there. They're in fact quite saying the opposite. It's not if that I simply mourn enough, if I'm poor enough, if I show enough mercy, and if I take enough beatings and are persecuted more than other people, then I get the blessing of God. Do you, do you, do you track it with me there? It's not that in my doing of these things that this is a list of how to be blessed. Does that make sense? In fact, I think in many ways it's often saying this, the opposite. It's not like Jesus is presenting a new kind of legalism. Do these things and you get this. In fact, Hebrew historian Alfred Edersheim says, in the Sermon of the Mount, the promises attaching, for example, in the so-called Beatitudes, must not be regarded as the reward for the spiritual states with which they are respectively connected, nor yet as their result. It's not because a man is poor in spirit that his is the kingdom of heaven, in the sense that one, will, one state will grow into the other or be its result. Still less is the one Uh, is the one, the reward of the other. The connecting link in each case is Christ himself. Because Jesus is there speaking these messages, he is the one who's opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers, no matter their station. It's a pronouncement, a declaration, and an invitation at the same time. Announcing the kingdom of heaven is here I am the Messiah. I am here to pronounce to you the coming kingdom of God. You are welcome in this kingdom. When you find yourself under the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ, you are blessed. And because they live under his rule and reign, even though they find themselves to be misfits and the outcast of the society, it is that even the great God of heaven shines down his love and his transforming power even to the outskirts of us and humanity, the ones pushed aside. Those are the ones that God uh, greatly loves and his beloved. His hand reaches down even there. This is God's family. This is his kingdom. His good news, the good news of this is, is the fact that, that you and I are invited to this kingdom. And you and I might find yourselves identifying with these groups. <laughs> and yet I think as we identify with these groups, it's not something that we need to identify with each one or not identify with each one, but that the blessings of the Beatitudes are really encapsulating a larger group of people. You could say a church. Blessed are you, church, you people, one group of people. We connectively together are like a mosaic of different backgrounds and storylines and histories and pasts and successes and failures. 
And yet we come together as a unified whole of people, strange as we are, misfit as we are. We come together connected and to make a beautiful tapestry, a beautiful mosaic, a beautiful picture or a painting of God's glorious grace and love. And as that's poured out, we recognize that in these blessings are blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, blessed are those who mourn. Well, I'm not mourning, so maybe I won't be comforted. That's not the point. It's that this idea that we are together, all reading, that Jesus is saying that my kingdom, my people, are, are people who find themselves at times to be even poor. Yes, physical state, but even maybe poor in spirit. They find themselves to be in places where they may be mourning. They might be meek. They might be hungry or thirsty, merciful, and not receiving any attention rag. Innocent at heart, peacemaking. They might find themselves to be beaten and reviled. Maybe we, we identify with some of those things, and the point is what, what Jesus is saying, that this group of people, these are even the types of people that are in my kingdom, and this is the kingdom of God that is welcome to all, to all who would come. Welcome to the kingdom. Come to the kingdom. You're invited. There's room for you at this table. You are blessed. He isn't proclaiming a new legalistic way of engineering human righteousness on our own apart from him. The fact is that Jesus himself is speaking the Sermon of the Mount. We come and we listen to him and we obey his words and we trust him in what he says and we find ourselves now in a state of blessedness. The very blessedness of the state of the people of God who come into the kingdom of God. No matter what condition they are, they are in, they come to follow Jesus. And that alone is blessing enough. A life-changing blessing. Life-changing blessing that will then transform you over a lifetime. To be able to be light and salt for this good news for anyone who would come into the kingdom. And so he gives these statements, and I'm not going to be going like super detailed into all this. I've preached at different times when we've looked at each one individually. But here I want to look at these first two, and we're going to kind of look at them in groups and kind of fly through them here. But in these first two, you see, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm going to look at these two together. In fact, the, the idea of those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn reflects a beautiful picture of what Jesus says when he first comes onto the scene. He steps into the synagogue, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and in chapter, in Luke actually is where he lists this most uh, clearly. For in Luke chapter 4, it says Jesus went to Nazareth, goes into the synagogue, he opens the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, and he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of the sight of the blind, to set the liberty, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in many ways, it's as if he, he comes speaking to these very groups of people when he says, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor and to those who are in sorrow over their sin and hardship that they appear, we find that now you are blessed, he says in 3 and 4. Poor in spirit here, this idea of this messianic hope of Jesus coming into their lives, of rescuing them from their spiritual bankruptcy. Being poor in spirit is a spiritual bankruptcy that I cannot do this on my own. I have nowhere else to go. I turn to Jesus, and I find blessing in his kingdom. 
And it's in our spiritual bankruptcy that we receive the kingdom of heaven for Jesus has reached down and touched our lives and blessed us. As Dallas, uh, Dallas Willard says in these ideas, the poor in spirit and many of these people or these groups of people are known maybe in that day or time as, as spiritual zeros. As one teacher in my high school used to say, you guys are like, like zeros with the rings rubbed out. You know, that's about as much worth you guys are on this team, right? You're like a zero with a ring rubbed out. You're nothing, right? Very encouraging, right? Yeah. But this idea, this idea that really in some sense they're a spiritual zero. They're not the kinds of people that would come to, uh, we would say, hey, you, you uh, go give a teaching over here, lead a devotional, why don't you lead us in prayer? They're not the people who would step up into the religious sanctuaries, the synagogues of the day and do teaching. They're the people that are know themselves like the publican who wouldn't even pray in public for the Pharisee was out praying in front of everyone else. The publican would go to the corner and he said, I am not even worthy. This is the poor in spirit, spiritual bankrupt, and then they mourn over that. There's this sorrow there, the sorrow and mourning over our sin. There's this true grief over their sinful state. There's a beauty there of recognizing our sin and yet knowing that Jesus is the one who alone can rescue it. Romans 3.22 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that is the good news of the comfort that we receive. For those who mourn, they will be comforted with the comfort that comes only from God. From Jesus Christ in a relationship with him, if you find yourself in a mourning state, you will find comfort in him. And then it goes on to the meek and to the hungry and to the thirsty Meek is something we don't always use in day-to-day conversation. You probably don't often say, well, that person is so meek. We use other words today. It's a word that maybe isn't uh, popular. Meek, Moses was known as being meek. The CSB actually translates meek here as humility. Meekness is, is maybe gentleness. Some would say it's quiet strength, capable of much power and strength, but able to harness it for kindness and gentleness and love and discipline. And these people who are meek aren't looking for much in return. They aren't looking to be the center of attention, but they are the ones who find themselves receiving a great inheritance, something beyond they could ever imagine. The whole earth, it says, for they will inherit the earth. Then it goes on to the hungry and thirsty. Even those who are legitimate, they have real needs, our hunger and thirst, real actual needs and cravings and desires. And for what, it says, they have hunger and thirst for righteousness, you could say for justice, for what's right, for the things of God. And in that, they will find the purity and the pureness of heart. They will find mercy in response to this. For the merciful, the purity, and the peacemaking are the ones that follow. The groups of people, the church of God, the kingdom of God are full of people who find themselves to be pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted. This merciful group, this idea that they, they, they extend kindness to others to help in their need. They show mercy and grace. This is the kind of heart that God does not despise. Pure in heart. They seek no malice. Heart of a follower of Jesus Christ is a pure heart, a heart with an inward life, not divided, not distracted and perverted, but one that's purely devoted to God. Sinful, proud heart keeps us far from God, but purity draws us near, brings us close to him. And it's in that pureness of heart that we begin to actually see God for what he is. We see him face to face for who he truly is. 
And it's in that purity that we find that there's this peacemaking that occurs, this unity that's provided, and they will be called sons of God. For God, for Jesus, has made peace. He makes peace, killing the hostility, breaking down the walls, dividing walls, and welcoming in the ministry of reconciliation. We become reconcilers now. We're at peace with God and peace with one another. There's also with this, there will come persecution. There will come times when people will revile you and put you down. And this this persecution that that we find that the kingdom of heaven is yours. 1 Peter 3.14, if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Living rightly, living in Jesus, we find that you will encounter persecution. And yet... In all of this, and especially at that most poignant time when these people that he knows he's speaking to, he's looking to, that they themselves have experienced persecution, Jesus knows that John the Baptist, as that scene, was arrested and put in prison and later on will be beheaded. We know this persecution is real. And what does he say? Striking statement in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward will be great in heaven. Rejoice, be glad. You're blessed. You're in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, my people in my kingdom receive the kingdom of heaven, comfort for their sorrow, the earth is their inheritance, satisfaction for their needs, mercy and grace extended from God to them, seeing God for who he truly is, adopted as a son or daughter into my family, for the kingdom of God will be your home and heaven will be yours. What are we complaining about? (laughs) You're blessed, he says. Do you not recognize that you need a paradigm shift for whatever station you find yourselves in? If you're in the kingdom of God, you are blessed because Jesus Christ says so. So now take that blessing, not for yourselves, but to share with others. To be salt and to be light. For you are the salt of the earth, he says. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. Rather, be the salt, be the light. As Donald Barnhouse describes, the church of Christ is like the moon. Jesus is the sun. The moon now reflects the beauty of the light of Jesus Christ. For Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then in this passage, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Jesus spreads the light of truth and the church now. You and I now reflect that like the moon to the world for, for all the world to see. We reflect the light of the world, the the beauty of the gospel of Jesus is spread. And then we become the salt in whatever community we find ourselves, preserving that community with the truth, with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, with the lasting, transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We take the salt and it preserves the whole. It preserves the the, the rest. And it gives flavor to, or, or a reason or value to all of existence because we take the truth of God in his word and we become the light and we become the salt wherever we find ourselves. And it's all those beautiful things are not always found in the upper echelon of people who deserve it but are found in the people who recognize that we're just a misfit. (laughs) Almost silly in some ways in our lives, the things that we struggle with and the things that we value in comparison to the greatness of God's kingdom, the things that we put on equal footing and equal needs with the kingdom of God and eternal life. It's as if, as Dallas Willard says, he says, this is the gospel for a silly world. 
all the more needed because the silly is made a matter of life and death for many. Sin, for that matter, is silly in this sense that if the kingdom did not reach us in our silliness and, and our needs and the things that we're concerned with, who would be saved? Lostness does not have to wear a nice shirt to find redemption. So we must see from our heart that the blessed are the physically repulsive, he says. The blessed are those who might smell bad. The twisted, the misshapen, the deformed. Blessed are the too big, the too little, the too loud. The bald, the fat, and the old. They are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus through him and him alone, through his grace. And the more serious side of it, and this gets me every time, so I'll try to read it. Then there are the seriously crushed ones. There are the flunk outs, the drop outs, the burned outs, the broke and the broken, the drug heads, the divorced, the HIV positive, the herpes ridden, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren. And the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, blessed are the shoved aside and the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents not dying in the rest home, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, those who say that the emotionally starved or the emotionally dead, and on and on and on and on. Is it, is it true that earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal? It is true. That is precisely the gospel of the heaven's availability that comes to us through the Beatitudes. You don't have to wait until you're dead. Jesus offers you this kingdom now to present this blessedness of the present kingdom regardless of your circumstances or whether you think you deserve it or don't. The condition of life sought for all by human beings through the ages is attained in the quietly transforming friendship of Jesus Christ. You come to him, you get to know him, and he pours out his blessing on your life. He transforms you into something that you never thought possible before because of his love and of his grace. It goes on and says that these are God's grubby people. In their midst, there's a Corey Ten Boom taking the hand of a Nazi who killed her family members. The scene is strictly not of this earth. Any spiritually healthy congregation of believers in Jesus will more or less look like these brands plucked from the burning to receive the kingdom of God. I didn't ascend this ladder, I didn't get to the top. I'm saved by grace. And God is not disturbed by those people, and neither should we. God loves these people. He loves you, and he loves me. He hates our sin. That's why he sent Jesus to die for it, to implant the Holy Spirit, to empower us to live for holiness, and to honor him as salt and light through this world, now in his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6 describes that there's this lifestyle that was before, and such were some of you, it says, such were some of you, but you are washed and sanctified, made holy now through his holiness and justified in the name of Jesus by his spirit. And some of this might seem silly that why would Jesus call the misfits to him to start his kingdom? 
1 Corinthians 1 describes, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What we think to be wise is so far from the truth. So what I'm trying to say, I guess, sometimes I, I go on these things, and it's hard for me to communicate all of what I'm feeling, but I think that the statement that I've gathered sometimes from Matthew 5 is this sense of like, all are welcome, you know. All are welcome. And he says, come as you are, receive the kingdom of God. Jesus, reach down into our world, take his hand. He will uphold you. He will bless you. He will guide you. He will save you. All are welcome to find their home in the kingdom of God. And he will in no wise turn you out. Do you believe that? I don't know if you know the story of Pilgrim's Progress. I've been reading the, the children's version to my kids recently. They love it. And it's a story written by John Bunyan many years ago. I don't know the date. It's often said that Pilgrim's Progress is the second most printed book on the planet. <laughs> second to only the Bible. This is quite extraordinary. But in that story, John Bunyan speaks about a great many things. But he also wrote another book called Grace Abounding, which is a story of his life and his testimony and his salvation experience. And as he came to faith, he wrote this book, Grace Abounding, and I was reading it the other day, and I stumbled upon this scripture in conjunction with it. It's the scripture of John 6, 37, all the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So I read John Bunyan's word as he describes how pivotal those words were to him in his salvation experience. Now he's writing many years ago, and so some of the language is in that King James language. The scripture, he says this, this scripture did also sweetly visit my soul. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out, John 6, 37. Oh, the comfort that I had from this word, in no wise, in no situation. As who would say by no means for nothing whatever he hath done, but Satan would greatly labor to pull this promise from me, telling of me that Christ did not mean me, and such as I, but sinners of a lower rank, that they had not done what I had done. But I would answer him again, saying, here is these words, no such exception, but him that comes, him, any him, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The question before you today, before you today, in this Sermon on the Mount, in this Beatitudes, is will you come to Jesus? Will you come as you are? Will you repent and turn and accept and be accepted into the kingdom of God by following Jesus? For the lies of Satan come into your life all the time. He whispers into our ear, you're not enough. You're not pretty enough. You haven't done enough in savings these days. The economy's terrible and we're all losing everything. What do we do? You don't have enough. You've got to get that in order. You're not making enough money. You're not smart enough to join this club. You're not fast enough. You're not competent enough. You're not wise enough. You're not attractive enough. You're not strong enough. And you're definitely not good enough. But we come back to this statement and we know that God calls me blessed. And that's enough enough. I don't care who you are or what you've done or your past. We step into the kingdom of God, finding ourselves poor in spirit, mourning, meek, 
hungry and thirsty, pure in heart, peacemakers. These are the places that God will restore and transform. Sin makes us fall short, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ welcomes each and every one of us to the table of the family of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. It's here. Step into his kingdom. Live in the kingdom. Be salt. Be light. Because you're a heavenly father has given you his helper, his Holy Spirit, to guide you in the way of all truth. For the spirit of Jesus is teaching us, is training us today to be a church, to be together. So the invitation stands even for you today. Welcome to the kingdom, my sister, my brother. You are mine, Jesus says, and I am yours. Blessed are you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we... We thank you for these words, these words of encouragement that we so desperately need. God, I, I don't always measure up. Don't always do what I should. And yet, Lord, we know that you, you love us still. Your grace is so good to us, God, as we sing these, these other words that we've sung in the Your mercies more. Blessed is your name. For God, we thank you for the blessing you pour out. God, forgive us when we, when we don't believe these words, when we don't walk in faith. Teach us to trust you. T teach us, Lord, to step in, out in courage. Teach us, Lord, to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To recognize, God, that that you are our portion and you are our strength. Teach us these things, God. Help us to proclaim these things and the, the life that we have in the kingdom, God. Help us to live that out now. I know I so easily forget these things and move on with my life, but Lord, help me. Help me today to dwell and to meditate and consider the truths of your blessing poured out on your people, the kingdom of God. And may God, we share that with others. Keep it for ourselves desire that the whole earth would be blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.